to remember that scientists have to communicate now. We can't hide ourselves into a dark room to work alone. We have to actually make sure that we're communicating to a much broader audience, the public in sense. Hello and welcome to Just Questions, where I talk to researchers and students about their research questions and how they ask them. And this episode we have... Brian Fisher. I'm an entomologist at the California Academy of Sciences, where I run an ant lab that explores ant evolution and diversity. So Brian, what do you work on? I work on the invisible. It's these tiny little insects that run the world, and I specialize on the ants. And what kind of questions do you ask on them? The questions I ask are actually quite simple. What things exist? Where do you find them? How are they related? And why do we need them? But as it turns out, we have a long ways to go before we fully an understand those simple questions. Most people, first off, don't even see the ants. But once you start seeing them, you really start seeing the world differently. You start seeing how ecosystems work, and you start seeing how we're related to that ecosystem. Most people don't realize we're animals, right? And as any animal, we need clean water, clean food, clean energy. And once you understand that, you have a kind of a different relationship to Earth. And it's not just something to be used, to be cut down, to put a factory, to put a farm. It's actually something to care, to cultivate, to encourage. And that's my role, is to make people see ants. But really, I want them to see that forest, that ecosystem, and why we need it. And what methods do you use to answer all the questions that you ask? Well, my research involves going to the most remote places that are the least explored, where we know very few things. And I get a big thrill out of being like the first scientists or group of scientists to get somewhere because there's just like this thrill. You wake up every day, what are we going to find today? What are we going to find? And to bring other people there, to explore that area, to climb that mountain, to hash, to find a trail that goes up to that mountain, to that rare high altitude forest, and then to come back with new discoveries. When you're making that discovery, there's this amazing thrill that's will stay with you for the rest of your life. And for that moment, you're the only one that understands or knows that. Of course, you go back and relate that to the greater literature, the greater scientific base. But for that moment, it's yours. And that's a real thrill. It's like being the first one to walk on the moon, but we get to do it over and over again. So you've written a book on um, ants of Africa. So how did it all start and what made you decide that you need to write a book about it. It's an interesting question. Why did I write a book about ants? And it's actually the same answer as to what I do for my research. I first went to the tropics. My goal was always to go to the tropical rainforest. And I went to Panama early in my studies. And I was impressed with this incredible diversity, but more kind of shocked that there were no tools for me to actually understand it. There were bird books and there were bird tourists. And there was everything about birds. But what about guides to the insects? What about guides to the ants? I wanted to learn about the ants and I had nothing that I could use to open that up. So basically my whole life has been answering that question. I always wanted a course about ants, so I began ant course. I always wanted field guides and images about every species of ant found in every country. So I started AntWeb. But I also realized that we needed basic guides. If you wanted a whole army of people in the world to actually start appreciating ants, we needed a field guide. So this field guide series I started um, with colleagues, um, first on North America, now on Africa and Madagascar, is really answering that need to let anybody who's curious, let anybody who wants to learn about ants, to give them the tools to do that. 
Is it your goal to kind of cover ants from all over the world and write books about them? Right. So this year we launched the Ants of Africa and Madagascar. Next year we'll be publishing a, a revision of the Ants of North America, expanded edition. Then after that we'll be doing Ants of Southeast Asia. So the Ants of India will be there. And then we'll be doing the Ants of South America. We're focused mostly on the tropical regions, the most diverse regions, the most least known regions. And at the same time, we're trying to make ants like the birds, in a sense. We want to know them and appreciate them on equal footing as we do the birds. Great. So let's talk about questions. I want to know, what was your first research question that you, that you asked? Yeah, the first research question I asked was basically like a botanist. I wanted to understand how communities change over landscapes, over gradients, up a mountain, across change in geology. Botanists were doing this all the time. I was really inspired by two botanists who were part of this rapid assessment team. I just romanticized them. I wanted to be just like them. They were traveling on small planes, going to remote areas, and understanding what's unique about it by looking at plant communities, Al Gentry, Robin Foster. And I had a chance to hang out with them, and I said, I want to do that for ants. And initially, was just naively thinking I could do that for ants and realizing later that you would have to first know all the ants of South America to find out what was special about one spot. And we knew very little about ants. So that's why I ended up in Madagascar. On the map, at least, it was a very tiny island. And I thought within a few years, I could understand the ants in Madagascar and use it as a demonstration of how we can use ants in conservation. Well, as it turns out, I've been there for 20 years working. And a thousand new species later, I'm still working there. Because even for a small world like Madagascar, we've had a great amount of uh, things to learn. But I think we're getting there. I think the next generation of ant scientists will already have this baseline of tools. They'll be able to expand the reach of those questions from neuroscience to ecology. And this effort will actually kind of allow ants to continue on being a scientific focus. Um, not all insect groups, not all hymenoptera will be into that digital realm where there's tools and field guides. There'll just be a select few of insects that will reach that point. There'll be butterflies, dragonflies, and I just want to make sure ants are part of that uh, next frontier of science. Great. So, um, what, according to you, makes a good research question to ask? So, if a young scientist asking these questions, as it turns out, it's interesting how the most simplest question should not be discarded because they're simple. How do ants communicate? How do ants make decisions? Why do they have a metapleural gland? These are such simple questions that you can so quickly think, oh, we must know the answer. But we often don't. And we don't know it for many ants if we don't for just one. So I would encourage students to go for the most basic questions. For example, you know, queens live a long time. Workers don't. That's aging, right? Right there in front of us. Nobody really understands that. So I encourage students not to run off looking for some such a complicated question that because we don't know often the most simplest questions. We don't know the answers. So they're right in front of you. So if you just have a question yourself, don't think we know the answer of it. That could be the focus of your entire research. So uh, during the course of your research, you must have had um, many questions and, and ideas arising from them. Do you have any pet idea from the ideas that you've had? Right. So you can't walk into a rainforest and not have a thousand ecological questions arise. Um, what's that relationship with that ant? How is its seasonality? How is its nest architecture? Why do we find these types of ants often together? Why do arboreal ants have longer legs? There's lots and lots of questions. but. Actually, I have to be restrained 
from not getting distracted. I have to keep reminding myself, especially in the natural history, if you want to achieve something, you really have to think of like, over the next 15 years, I want to answer this question, or even longer. Our projects are often very long-term. To actually develop Madagascar in terms of developing the taxonomic infrastructure, that's not a two-year question, that's a 30-year question. And I have to keep reminding myself, if I want to make my work have outcomes in conservation, I got to keep focused on that at all times and not, in a sense, be distracted by these thousands of other questions. They're great for students to start off on, but we, for myself personally, I have to keep focused on these larger questions of making sure that we can demonstrate that the ants and ecosystems can be demonstrated to be important for the well-being of humans. Final question. Uh, do you have any general advice to students that might be starting off with their research? In terms of science, there are some great changes in science and how science is happening now and how it's structured. Science is much more global now. Science is much more collaborative now. And I encourage that students remember three things. It's We have to remember that scientists have to communicate now. We can't hide ourselves into a dark room to work alone. We have to actually make sure that we're communicating to a much broader audience, the public in sense, with a result. So every scientific paper that's going to be read by three of your colleagues, make sure you find a way to get that to a much broader audience. Write another article, do a video, do a podcast, communicate. And also, we have to make sure science has connectivity. Often, our goal was simply to do a paper, describe a new species. We have to think of ways of making that paper have connections. I call that connectivity of science, open science, make sure our data is available, make sure our data can be reused, and making sure other people can apply it to a completely different outcome, even like conservation. So making sure your data, your raw data, is always available to the future. That also means only publishing in an article that has a DOI, making sure that you actually deposit your raw data, like in Dryad, that has a DOI. So DOIs are a great example of connectivity. If you publish in a journal that doesn't have a DOI, you've cut yourself off for future science. So we need to communicate, we need to have connectivity, and we need to collaborate. Not just collaborate with like-minded people, collaborate with other fields from chemical ecology to physics. That is how great science is going to go forward, is these desperate groups collaborating. Thanks very much, Brian. Sure, it's been a pleasure. And to summarize this episode... Communicate your science to the general audience. Do not ignore simple questions. Connect your science and collaborate widely. Check out antweb.org for more ant-related information and pick up your magnifying glass for ants and not just the binoculars for birds.